0: This is a sermon that I don't really feel prepared to give. I don't feel prepared intellectually or emotionally or experientially or even spiritually, probably. Uh, If I felt this on any other week, I might be inclined just to wait, to switch topics to something that I felt more comfortable with, something like Isaiah or the Thanksgiving Psalms, just to buy myself some more time to read and prepare and pray. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote these well-known words. He says, For years now, I have heard the word wait. This wait has almost always meant never. It has been a tranquilizing thalidomide, relieving the emotional stress for a moment only to give birth to an ill-formed infant of frustration. We must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. And from this vantage point, not much has changed in the last 50 or so years. The weight of the white American church has too often meant never. So I don't want to wait today. I feel that this must be addressed. On February 23rd, 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed by a father and son, Greg and Travis McMichael, in Brunswick, Georgia. Early reports stated that Arbery, a known runner, was jogging in the neighborhood on a Sunday afternoon. Alerted to his presence, the father and son attempted to make a citizen's arrest due to their belief that Arbery matched the description of someone who had previously burglarized their neighborhood or that Arbery was in the process of attempting to burglarize an unoccupied home under construction. It should be noted that the owner of the home who lives 90 miles away does not believe that any wrongdoing actually took place. Arbery was shot three times. The McMichaels were not arrested until more than two months had passed and only after significant attention had been drawn to the tragedy on social media. On March 13th, Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old EMT, was shot at home in what has been described as the execution of a botched search warrant by the Louisville Police Department. Reports indicate that the police investigation was focused on a home 10 miles away from Taylor's apartment and on suspects who were already in custody by the time police entered Taylor's home. When they heard noises outside of their apartment, Taylor and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, believed that they were being burglarized, so Walker called 911. When the officers entered, he discharged a legally obtained and licensed gun, striking an officer in the leg. The three officers who arrived in unmarked cars and were wearing plain clothes, then fired 20 to 23 rounds, striking Taylor eight times and killing her. NBC News reported that Taylor and Walker had no criminal history, no drug convictions, and no drugs were found in the apartment. It should go without saying that I am not an expert on all of the facets of these cases. I was not there and as a result I'm limited in what facts are available to me. I also understand that details are still forthcoming and that it is at least possible that my comments here might prove to be misguided as more information is released down the line. Also, out of respect for my friends in law enforcement and their families, I want to be really clear that I do not pretend to understand the responsibilities, the pressure, the difficulty of police work. It is a cross that I am unwilling to bear. So to the good ones, I am thankful that you can bear that and that you do bear that. Now, having said that, I wanted to address my disappointment in the level of discourse or maybe more accurately, the complete lack of discourse offered by white majority churches regarding the recent deaths of Arbery and Taylor. And sadly, this is not an anomaly. We have remained silent on many other senseless and wrongful killings of people of color as well. In my best estimation, silence in these spaces is largely due to an overriding fear of upsetting the constituency by treading too close to what might be deemed overly political. My advisor used to say that you can't be a prophet on the payroll, and when it comes to saying something that may impact giving, that may impact finances, uh, as, as most of what would constitute prophetic actually does, I think he's right. It is interesting to me, though, however, that certain political topics are viewed within the church not only as appropriate but necessary, while others, most notably issues of racial and economic injustice, are viewed as too divisive for us to address. Now, in addition to this practical concern, I've already mentioned that we tend to wait for more evidence, for video footage, for arrests to be made, or for the courts to decide for us what actually took place. And there's certainly wisdom in waiting. But we have waited far too long to address racial injustice in our country, and we have remained silent on too many occasions, even after the evidence or the footage or the arrests or the court decisions have been rendered. In both of these pastoral decisions, in our desire to accommodate and to appease and to sort of skirt around difficulties that might upset individuals and in our desire to wait for more information, I believe that we're missing an important opportunity to live into our mission as the people of God. That is, to be about the kind of reconciling, restorative, risk-taking work that Jesus was about. In these specific cases, that work as I see it is to stand in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters who are enraged, who are grieving, who are shocked, or maybe better, not shocked. Those who are exhausted from having to explain to us why any of this matters, why their voice has not been heard, why we don't seem to understand why they feel the way that they do on these issues. And to some degree, I would say that this solidarity, it It has happened, somewhat surprisingly. Many of us, for example, we we laced up our running shoes last weekend and we took to the streets to run 2.23 miles in memory of Ahmaud Arbery. In this distance, it was chosen by the organizers to commemorate the date of his death in Brunswick, Georgia. But this, you must admit, this was an easy task perhaps aided by the fact that Run With Maude was a trending online movement of racial justice that only required a shared Facebook post, maybe a video of our feet, and a signature on a petition. In most of our circles, th- perhaps especially in our circle, this cost us nothing. We ran with Maud like we dumped ice on our heads a few years ago, only this time probably without a donation. I believe that, along with many of you, that we believe that more is required. And I believe, along with many of you, that more is required first because of humanity's shared identity as image bearers of the Most High God, something that we talk about often but doesn't necessarily always seem to inform how we live. Uh, Second, I think that more is required because the love of Jesus, it extends well beyond cultural and racial boundaries. It is not segregated or compartmentalized. It is all-encompassing. So we stand in solidarity. Yes, absolutely we do. But we must also fight alongside of our black brothers and sisters in the call for justice. To be sure, justice does not preclude likes and shares on social media, but it is never limited to that. In my best reading of the Bible, the fight for justice, it appears to be at the heart of the call to follow Jesus. Now, sadly, I believe that we have tamed our understanding of who Jesus was. He, he was radical. He was not bound by religious tradition. In fact, he often uh, tread upon those uh, traditions and routines and, and charted a different path. He appeased no one. He upset the power structures, eventually leading to his own death. He included the marginalized. He befriended outcasts and sinners, the people of whom uh, folks would say, what is he doing? Why is he doing this? Why is he with these people? He ate dinner with very unlikely company. And this is all part of his, of his mission that transcends and goes beyond the spiritual renewal that we all seem to limit him two. In Luke chapter four, this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels, uh, because what the author of Luke has done is he has taken a story about Jesus. Now remember, we always talk about the Gospels as shaped history, shaped retellings of Jesus's life for, for theological purposes. And this story, it appears in Matthew and Mark, but it appears as something that's just a side note almost. It's buried uh, among the list of things that Jesus does. But for Luke, he takes this story, plucks it up and puts it as the very first thing that Jesus does after his, his baptism and temptation. The very first act of ministry is Jesus going home to Nazareth where he had been brought up and he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. It says this was his custom. He stood up to read from the scrolls and it was the prophet Isaiah that was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor this is the text from Isaiah that Jesus is reading. And what makes this passage even more ridiculous is that it says he rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. He sits down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are on him. Like, what is this guy doing? What is he talking about? It was, it was fixed upon him. And then he began to say to them, today the scripture that, that all of them knew, that they were very familiar with this sort of prophetic text of what would happen. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is a Jesus of justice. This is a Jesus who isn't just about the spiritual. And Luke says, this is the story through which we must understand Jesus and his ministry, all of the things that he will do, the healing, the feeding miracles, the gathering around the table with with sinners and outcasts, the people that he puts his neck out for. This Jesus we must understand in light of this Nazareth sermon, this just, sermon, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it all comes back to this, bringing good news to the poor, being about the the, the proclamation of release to the captives and actually enacting that letting the oppressed go free. In in many ways, we've traded this depiction of Jesus, this powerful, beautiful depiction of Jesus in Luke for a more individualized, a more nationalized, a more spiritualized, a more conservative, a more powerful, a more presentable, a more safe, a more white version of Jesus that we're comfortable with. And as such, the release from captivity that's imagined in this passage it becomes metaphorical it's about our spiritual release from captivity and the chains that that bind us the chains of sin perhaps and the freedom from oppression it's metaphorical it's not about real oppression it's not about real captivity it's not about the real poor it's about spiritual poor and spiritual oppression and spiritual captivity. And as a result of this shift, our music, our church services, our traditions, our practices, our mission as a church, it it demonstrates this. We'll donate our clothes to the Salvation Army, but we will not wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. We will give a percentage of our stimulus check uh, to the church or to a nonprofit, but we won't risk the the social capital to voice an opinion that might be deemed questionable or controversial. We might agree that biblically speaking, God is the God of the poor, which we see all throughout the Old Testament. And even here in Jesus, looking at this text saying uh, it's it's about a, a release for the poor We might agree that that's the thing, but we put all of our energy into our 401ks. And there's a disconnect here between our theology and our ethics, the things that we believe and the things that we do, the things that we say we stand for and what that looks like when we actually have to make decisions in the real world about whether or not we're going to buy in to what Jesus is all about. Last week I talked about these uh, familiar passages that I go to often and Luke 4 is one of them and Isaiah chapter 1 is also one of them because what we see in Isaiah chapter 1 is this sort of contrast between the worship that Israel offers to God and the lives that they live when they're not in the temple. In the very beginning of this book, Uh, It says in Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, linking Israel and the audience back to this notable uh, place of of debauchery. Uh, Often not the debauchery that you might think it is, but here within biblical terms, this is a place that, that received the punishment of the Lord for their inhospitality. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 14, it says, Your new moons and your appointed festivals, your religious traditions, my soul, it hates them. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Wash. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings. Cease to do evil learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. There's a very clear disconnect here between the lives that Israel is living in worship and the lives that Israel is living outside. They're doing the things. They're observing the traditions. They're bringing the sacrifices. They're singing the songs, if you will. They're observing the feasts and the festivals, but God is saying, I'm weary of them because your hands are full of blood blood and I'm not so sure that it's that different for us now we talk we claim the things that we believe but what do we do which leads to this question if we are to stand in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters in the midst of these tragedies and if beyond that, we're not just to stand in solidarity, but we're to fight alongside of them for justice, what can we do? What does it look like for us to learn to do good, as Isaiah would say, to seek justice, to rescue the oppressed, to defend the orphan, to plead for the widow, to fight for justice with our black brothers? and sisters in the midst of these tragedies. Now I'll be honest, this is where I feel completely unprepared. This is where if it were up to me, I would take a few more weeks, months even, just reading books, having conversations, educating myself to be able to say something of of worth to any of you based on my experience as a very middle-class, very white, very middle-aged white guy, that doesn't have a lot of life experience dealing with these sorts of tragedies. This is where I feel out of my depth, out of my comfort zone, out of my area of expertise. Let's get back to the Thanksgiving Psalms. Let's get back to Isaiah. I can talk about the ancient Near East and the context of these passages but I can't avoid the conversation simply because of my own insecurities. And we collectively as a church cannot avoid the conversations because of our collected uh, insecurities. And we as a larger entity of white Christians in America, we can no longer avoid these conversations because we feel out of our depth. So this is what I will suggest It is nothing that is of of real uh, intellectual significance. But I believe where we start is by listening and by stopping our, our penchant to justify and categorize and qualify the actions of people that look like us. What I've noticed over the last couple of weeks as, as all of this has been unfolding is the lack of regard for the voices of our black brothers and sisters in how they are attempting to make sense of all of this. In fact, we're usually quick to, to go over the top and to talk, to talk beyond or to note this YouTube video or that defense or these other things that might be out there to legitimize the death of these two individuals. And we're, we're much less uh, apt just to listen just to empathize, just to enter in and say, I have no idea what you're experiencing, but I'm here and I want to learn from you as I listen to the things that you say. To put ourselves off of trial for a moment and just to listen and to grieve. And in the midst of that, perhaps we begin to assess our own prejudice to assess also our own privilege. I know that these are buzzwords that for many people, it just sort of triggers them. They don't want to hear it. They probably have turned this off and left already, but there are real issues for us in in simply identifying the fact that if we were to walk into a construction site, we probably would not be dead. There is a privilege that we have that is based on the skin that covers our bodies. We must assess our our inbuilt, learned, and accepted prejudice of the people around us. And we must also assess the fact of our privilege in this world living and breathing as white men and women. If we've listened and if we've assessed and hopefully if we've begun to to turn the corner and move in a certain direction, maybe then we can begin to carry some of this load. Because I don't know if your Facebook feed looks like mine, but the, the level of discourse, again, it is completely polarized and some of the things that I have seen that I would deem to be worthy of engagement, I do not engage. And instead, I entrust the engagement to a select few black men and women who I know care about these issues. And I have not taken up my portion of that weight and what I have done in the process is I have exhausted them of their resources and of their patience and of their health and I have exhausted them from doing the work that I also could be doing to engage many of the people that they are having to engage. Now I understand that my background and my experience and my knowledge is very 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 different. But that does not mean that I don't know racism when I see it and that does not mean that I am unable to be anti-racist to the people that I see sort of justifying these two, the deaths of these two individuals. I think what it comes down to also is if we have listened and if we have assessed and if we are beginning to carry some of the load, then perhaps also we're going to stop waiting so long to do anything about any of this. I understand that we are not going to be able as individuals to fix uh, the the racial divide within our community, within our country, within our uh, media sources with, within our, our, our sphere of influence. That, that cannot be, but we can begin to move into action. We do not have to uh, render ourselves speechless because we're on the payroll, so to speak. We can begin to have prophetic conversations. And I don't mean conversations that tell the future. I mean conversations that are needed for here and now. We can begin to have those conversations with our family, with our friends. We can begin to have those conversations to some degree on social media, even though that, 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 that medium is, is a sort of a train wreck. We have seen positive things come out of that. And if nothing else, we can begin to be voices that will stand up for the marginalized in whatever uh, medium we are provided with, whether that is Facebook or whether that is at the dinner table or whether that is on the street, as we are seeing things unfold, we are able to be actively anti racist because that is what Jesus is and was and will be about. We can't come into this space and sing these songs. And, and and do these rituals without having our ethical lives shaped to mirror this. If we say that we are following Jesus, then we must follow Jesus in every aspect of our lives. And perhaps most notably in, in, these, in these moments of justice or injustice as we see them, to be ambassadors of the people Of Christ, who says, This is wrong, and we grieve with you, and we will fight with you alongside of you for what is right. This Jesus is not spiritualized, not only. This Jesus is not about forgiving our sins, not only this Jesus is calling us to participate in this worldwide act of restoration that includes the relationships that we have with individuals. And if these individuals are grieving and enraged and and broken, then we should enter in to listen, to learn, to assess who we are, to begin to carry that load, to stop waiting for a more opportune moment. We must begin now because the love of Jesus compels us to do so. I'm hopeful that we can do more Than share a Facebook video. I'm hopeful that we can do more than run 2.23 miles a week ago. I'm hopeful that our run continues on right here and right now. I'm hopeful that we begin not just to put feet to pavement, but we begin to enunciate the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is not just about heaven. It's about heaven invading earth right here and right now. We have work to do, TRP, we have work to do. I know that we are a white majority church and that we are small in number, but we have work to do. And I'm hopeful that as the spirit leads and guides that we will move into understanding what justice is, not just in these two cases, but on a more broader scale and that we will be people that can stand in the gap, to stand in solidarity, but also to fight alongside our brothers and sisters for what is right.